Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by renowned music producer and composer Ludwig Göransson. Over the past decade, he's won three Grammys, two Emmys, and one Academy Award for Best Original Score for the film Black Panther, directed by Ryan Coogler. In fact, he's scored all of Coogler's films, dating back to Fruitvale Station. When he's not working as a composer, he's producing records and writing hit songs for some of the most beloved musicians today. Hyam, Rihanna, Adele, and most consistently, Donald Glover, a.k.a. Childish Gambino. But his latest collaboration might be his most ambitious to date, creating the score for Christopher Nolan's newest epic, Oppenheimer. The film tells the story of the complex and controversial American scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer as he races against the clock to develop the atomic bomb. While each of the performances from a cast that includes Killian Murphy and Robert Downey Jr. are electric, it's Ludwig's singular composition that I think both pushes the film forward and holds it all together. Nolan himself has called the work deeply personal and historically expansive, drawing the audience into the emotional dilemmas of the characters while they each grapple with the vast geopolitical issues at play. Having seen the film twice now, it's Ludwig's score that 
has most stayed with me. It's powerful, but not overpowering. Tender, but not saccharine. If you haven't seen the film, you'll hear some of what I'm talking about in this episode. We also discuss his musical childhood in Sweden, coming to America in his early 20s, the building blocks of his decade-long collaborations with Kugler and Glover, respectively, and how his work on Oppenheimer marks a new chapter in the composer's varied, illustrious career. This is my conversation with Ludwig Göransson. Ludwig, a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here. You know, we rarely have someone on the show whose hair is longer than mine. Mm-hmm. And how do you feel about that? Profoundly insecure. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about it lately. Should I cut it off or should I keep it? But now I've passed the stage where I'm like, I don't know too much of my personality in it and my identity. Are you afraid of like the new person you would become if you cut your hair? I'm not afraid of that. I'm more afraid of like everyone losing interest in me. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Ryan Coogler, Donald Glover, Christopher Nolan, they're just in it for the hair they don't have. (laughs) That's the secret. Um, How has your summer been back home in Sweden? It's been incredible. This is the first time and I moved to America about 15 years ago. And this is the first time when I'm in Sweden, my home country, for more than like a week at a time. I've been here for three months now. It's great. I mean, the biggest reason why I want to spend more time here now is because of my kids. I have an almost four-year-old and a, and a two-year-old. And um you just want them to have the Swedish identity and want them to be able to speak the language fluently. And so it's it's important. Being back home, has it forced you to kind of like reflect on the last 15 years of working in America? Yeah. I don't know who I am here yet a little bit. I feel like everything around me here has changed and I'm a different person. I never I never had a professional career in, in Sweden. I was always a you know, student or, you know, a kid. So me coming back as as someone that has a, some kind of work experience and trying to just trying to kind of navigate life here and, and I feel like a lot of things in Sweden changed too the last fifteen years. So I'm I'm still trying to find the balance and trying to find myself here, but it, it's it's an exciting time to do that. Well, it's been an especially exciting summer for you because I don't know if you've been reading, but people seem to be liking Oppenheimer. It's brought them back to the movies, mm-hmm. the Barbenheimer phenomenon. I don't know how it happened, but I'm glad it did. In the film, there is roughly two and a half hours of original music, which some publications have reported you made in five days. How does someone make something like this in five days? Well, I think start off, the, 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 some of that publication is not correct. Beautiful. But to go back, you, you can't, this is not possible to do it in five days. It was published that, that I recorded, recorded the music in five days, which is also not true because I recorded this for about six months with different musicians, like string quartet, string octet, soloists. But when I had the whole orchestra together in the same room, that amount was five days. The recording process, when you record the full orchestra together, that's kind of the last piece of the puzzle. So that's the last final stage of putting together a film score. The hard work is often way before that. So normally when you hear the orchestra playing the score, that's that's like 
the climax of the whole process when you can kind of take a step back and just listen to the music, almost like seeing your, the birth of your child or something. Well, if that's the climax, why don't we just go back to act one? Mm-hmm. You get a call from Christopher Nolan. He says what? He says, I finished a script and I'd love for you to read it. And can you come by and read it tomorrow or in two days? Chris is kind of in a way where he doesn't really talk about what he's working on, even though we spend time together and we talk. And but he's never like, oh, think about writing this and this is about this. So it's always kind of a call out of the blue. So I get the call. I go out to the studio. I go into the room, close the door, and sit with the script for as much time as I need. And this was a pretty heavy script. Uh, I had no idea what it was going to be about. And so I immediately get just sucked into the story and sucked into Oppenheimer and the character and the way that the script is written is is from Oppenheimer's point of view, everything you're living the world through his eyes. So that was something that that I was completely taken by surprise to read something like that and, and I was completely floored after I read that script. And I immediately also thought that the music needs to kind of do the same thing and the same experience I had when reading it. Then music needs to get the audience to feel like they're in his eyes, feeling everything he's feeling. The first step, or the only specific instrument he wanted, was the violin, which, as I understand it, you don't play the violin, mm-hmm. but your your wife does. When you drive back home, what's the pitch you make to her? Um, well, it was kind. Of, it was kind of after I read the script. And secrets, actually. I, it was not until a few days later when I went to his house and we talked about it. And it was also, we talked about the script, we listened to music, we talked about movies. And and that's when he kind of mentioned that I don't really have any ideas other than trying to use an experiment with the sound of violin. And Chris also knows Serena, my wife, so he knows that he's she's a violinist. And, and we kind of have the advantage to being in the studio with her and, and experiment and you know try out some different techniques and spend time on just sounds was definitely a luxury. You two working on it before you bring in this big orchestra that you're talking about, do you remember a moment where it kind of started to click? I remember we'd been recording the whole day just different kind of glissandos, just one note, little vibratos and long notes and doing glissandos up and down and changing the pitch and changing the, the, the speed of the vibrato, going from something somber and beautiful to something horrific within seconds. And then I think after a whole day of recording that, we're kind of both just like, okay, this is this is not that fun, like <laughs> sitting there for hours recording noises. And we're like, okay, well, we have to go home see the kids. I remember I was like putting down something on the piano really quick. It took me like five minutes. And I was like, why don't we just record this? idea over this bass line that I wrote. And she played the melody in one take. And it was beautiful and haunting and and intimate and kind of sad and fragile. And we recorded that within 10 minutes. And I sent it immediately over to Chris. And then he called me later that night. And he was like, this is an Oppenheimer's theme. I think this is the theme. Well, since we're telling this story, not exactly in chronological order, which is kind of fitting, I think, for Christopher Nolan work. Why don't we play the titular track from the film, Oppenheimer? Let's do it.
Not bad. <laughs> Thank you. What were you thinking about hearing that just now? It brings back a lot of memories because you know we're, we're trying to find the tone of the of the movie, and and I remember that the way I wa- I wanted to try to find it was to really find emotional core of the music instead of focusing on kind of like the sounds and production. And I always try to have a different way to go about how to start a project. I always try to do it a different way. I always want to feel like I'm doing something for the first time. But it was it was just so interesting that that pro- like after writing two, three hours of music and, and trying really different type of compositions and this piece that was just kind of one more simple was the one that really stuck. And then your wife recorded the song that you wrote. You know, I, I wrote it as we were kind of packing up the backing up from the studio to go home and we're kind of in a rush and i started with that bass line the four note bass line and then we have the melody on top of it and the other melody that you hear is is a counter melody to the original melody when you're in the process of creating this elaborate score it's fascinating that the thing that landed most the emotional core that you were looking at it came about when the two of you were rushed Anxious to get back home, thinking about your kids, probably more than you were thinking about mm-hmm. putting down this track. In that process, have you found that that typically happens? Like when, when you're not expecting it, it kind of finds you. Absolutely. Especially when you've done, you know, you've been doing something for a long time in a day. You've been writing or you've been recording with your band and you've done it for 10 hours. Like the last two, three hours, everything is going to start sounding bad. It's like your head gets tired and you start to criticize yourself when you like you, there's all this noise coming into your to your mind your brain and like this voice is telling you that you know telling you what telling telling like you feel like oh this is not good this is not you know it's time to go home with time to wrap up but a lot of those times that's also when when the magic can happen well i want to uh, pinpoint when this like magic started happening for you because like we said at the top you're back home in sweden which is where you came of age in a pretty musical household. Your father was a guitar teacher, your mother a florist and a pianist. Even your sister was musical. She played the violin. You, of course, began playing music at the age of seven, I think it was. Yeah. You wrote once, I've been making music every day since then and tomorrow. But my understanding is that the only reason you started playing the guitar was because your parents refused to buy you video games, which is what you kind of wanted like every young kid. And instead of a gaming console, you received a small, portable, four-channel cassette tape. Is that how this all began? Yeah, that's how my music production and songwriting came about. When I was about six or seven, I started sitting down with my dad 10, 15 minutes every day, just some alone time and just playing some very simple songs on, on guitar. And you I didn't have any opinion really about it. It was nice to spend some alone time with my dad. But then two years later, I think it was my birthday and I was like so excited. I was finally, it's going to be a Nintendo in the car waiting for me, (laughs) like a secret (laughs) package. And then I got a four track tape recorder instead. We put it up in the basement and I never left. And then every every birthday, it was just another thing, like a drum machine or an eight-track digital recorder or a new guitar. And there's always something musical that, that replaced those urges of video game consoles. Was there a particular day and a particular song by an American metal band 
that kind of fortified your desire to, to make music? It was actually, the, the way it came about was that my dad, he's a guitar teacher. So, and he started out as a classical guitar teacher and then he started playing blues and he loved, you know, blues and soul. And then one day his guitar students gave him a Metallica album and asked him if he could teach them how to play these songs. And he was like, no way, like I hate this music. <laughs> and then, but he took it home and he wanted to be a good teacher. So I was like, okay, I'm going to learn this so I could teach him how to play this. I remember being a kid and just hearing like a crazy noise from the basement where the studio was. And I go downstairs and I open the door and I see my dad like headbanging to Metallica play on Inner Sandman. And like my mind just exploded. It's like, what is this sound? What is what is this music? How can I play it? Had you ever seen him headbang before? No, I never seen him like that, like unleashed. And since I already knew how to play a little guitar, I could pretty quickly like pick it up and start playing the, the, the riffs and stuff. And then the solos, well, obviously I had to practice a lot. But then it became a thing, like we got, me and my dad went to see them live. We started playing the songs together. I started a band. I was all in from that moment. Were your parents like excited that this was your obsession? That you would like stay in the basement and, and just like stay in it? Yeah, they were my they were my biggest fans and supporters. Like I, I'm thinking back at it now, like I, might, I started a band and my dad was, he arranged for us to play on the, on the square of our hometown. He set up our instruments. He drove us around. He opened up the rehearsal space. You know, all that time that I just now I just at the time took for granted. Like that's what you know parents do. But now thinking back at it, just every weekend, how much he kind of spent his time and energy on that is pretty remarkable. When you're in high school and and you fall in love with like American rock and roll, when did you discover the possibilities of film scoring? I think a big part of that was like Napster and it was a program called DC Plus Plus. I don't remember that one. Okay. Yeah. It allowed me to, if I found a song that I liked on Napster, I could click on the user and then I could go into that user's like sound libraries or music libraries. And I could just pull that user, his or her whole library to my computer and find music that like I had never heard of. Some of that music was like, like Boston music. Some of it was... Turkish music from different parts of the world and some of it was also film scores and that was really fun for me like listening over and over to like the MacGyver theme song and the Turtles theme songs um, and I think a big part of it also was like technology like I liked being on the computer and finding this type of music and I also had a program in, in my computer called like Impulse Tracker it was like the first type of sequencer where you don't have like a range window you have is everything's just zeros and ones and numbers. So basically when you play the song, it just looks like a, a, a like a crazy like screen of just numbers up and down. And, and that's how I made my first kind of songs on the computer. And then obviously I went to Cubase and Logic and all that stuff. But a big part of the thing that excited me was also how the production of it and, and using technology. Have you listened back to any of those? No. And I don't want, uh, I don't feel like I want to. Your debut as, a, as an orchestral composer came at the age of 17. It was called Five Minutes to Christmas. Mm -hmm. The night that that was performed, what happened? It was kind of out-of-body experience because you were 17 years old. You know, the only time you've had your music performed is with your band, with three or four people. And then... The fact of like sitting and writing orchestral scores, we had opportunity, we had a great school, so I had an opportunity to, to write for the symphony orchestra, and I was one of the few chosen from the class to do it. 
And since we had such a good education, I already knew how to write it, you know, by hand and write down the sheet music by hand. And I was sitting in by the piano in our living room and just writing that the whole summer. It was very inspired by Star Wars and Nightmare Before Christmas and had like sleigh bells in it and kind of a Darth Vader theme in it. Not that great, but you could clearly hear what the inspiration was. And then, yeah, it was opening. We, we opened it during a school concert and there was the whole concert hall was full of people and they played my music. And it was really wild because everyone loved it so much and like they played it on the Swedish radio and it really made me feel special. But the big takeout from that was to hearing your music being performed by 70 people in a concert hall to a live audience. And just the feeling of that it was like how I just asked myself over and over again, how can I do this for the rest of my life? And how can I be able to, to do this in my, as a job? After the break, more from Ludwig Göransson. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, so they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Coming back, we were talking about the five minutes before Christmas orchestral piece that you put together. You then studied jazz improvisation at the Royal College School of Music before eventually moving to the U.S. at the age of 22 in pursuit of your master's at USC here in Los Angeles. This, I think, was in the fall of 2007, a period that you once described as a very difficult time in my life. What did that look like? Um, Just crying every night and missing my life that I had in Sweden and feeling very lonely. That is the opening of Oppenheimer. Yeah, it is. It is. I had those times. And 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 the funny thing is that I had that already happened once in my life. Like when I was 15, I moved to Stockholm. I lived in a smaller city and I moved to Stockholm. I started a like a music high school. And then at that time, I, like, I, meant, I moved home again. So I gave up and like, I moved back home. And then like, I always kind of like regretted that decision a little bit. I didn't want to do the same thing twice. You couldn't give up again? I couldn't do that. I knew how much I would regret it afterwards. I feel like LA is probably like one of the loneliest cities in the world. Everything is just so difficult to know where to go. You have to plan everything if you don't have a car. But the school, I mean, the school was great and it was competitive. The, the professors, and that's why I wanted to go there. The professors are all professional. And I think one of the things that was difficult was that the homesickness, like I didn't understand what that was either. Like I didn't know why I was having all those feelings. I was just confused. Why am I feeling like this? I couldn't navigate it and not being in control of that. And that was very scary. What do you mean scary? Just not, just, ha- it's almost something like, like a jealousy, if, you know, jealousy is like a feeling you can't control. At least for me, like I remember the, the times where I had those feelings that you're extremely jealous or something like that. It just eats at you or it comes like a big hole in your stomach. And that's what it was. Like at one night, it can be, I had, can have the best time of my life. And then like all of a sudden, and 30 minutes later, it can be just completely crushing and, and not knowing why. When do you think you started to get some control over that? Um, You're like, never still here. <laughs> <laughs> No, but but uh, it's not until recently where I'm like kind of starting to understand how those feelings came to be and and what that was all about and how I can try to give my 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 kids some kind of stability that so they don't have to kind of go through that. It does sound like I have, I have to say you really 
of all the things we've talked about, it does seem like the thing that's most on your mind right now. Oh, of course. Yeah. Definitely want to try to understand myself as good as I can for, for my kids' sake. In that period when you're in your mid-20s, did meeting and beginning to work with Ryan Coogler and then Donald Glover, did that help you understand yourself in that moment? I think that was maybe one of the things, I don't, I don't know if we had that in common, but like I, one of the things that Ryan and I had in common was definitely like feeling like we're far away from our families and having a hard time. He's from Oakland. Yeah, he's from Oakland. He's, and I was like, well, you're just two hours from home. It was like five hours from home. Like you can just, but that's not really what it was about. It was like your community. It was everything that's familiar to you and leaving that for something new and how difficult that is. And that we could talk about that. It was special. And then, yeah, and then to go back to our teacher, Kenny Hall. Kenny Hall was an incredible uh, teacher, professor at USC. Uh, he was a music editor. Uh, who worked with John Williams on E.T. and Jerry Goldsmith and a bunch of his movies. And he was the only teacher at school that had a class for both composers and directors in the same class. Which is unusual. Which is very unusual, but should be obvious. <laughs> uh, because music is, I mean, music is one of the most important parts of film. And to get some direction from a professor for the directors to how to talk about music and how to approach that, how to talk to the composers... I think was was incredibly helpful. And to have a class where we can discuss, so we can also understand how the directors talk about music and how they think about music. Because we're all students, we're like, oh, this is, you know, music is the most important part of the film. And like, it should be the loudest, you know, part of the whole student film you're doing and take out the sound effects and the dialogue and like, <laughs> and don't give me any notes. That's kind of the, how you approach it from the beginning. Was that your policy back then? No notes? <laughs> no, I was, I, I was, I was pretty open, but uh, but I I definitely remember before I started USC that I had like this romantic image of the film composer getting getting the film, having several months to himself at some kind of lodge up in the mountains and just being able to write the whole film score by himself <laughs> and then taking the orchestra and getting performed and then magically it's in the movie. You had to settle for Los Feliz and Silver Lake, I guess. <laughs> you know, as your uh, romantic hopes were kind of slowly dashed by the real process of making and creating these scores. You did like dozens of scores for students at USC. What stood out about Ryan and his work? First of all, I was friends a little bit with Ryan before he did his student film. So we had, we already had a little bit of a relationship before he asked me to score his film. But also like his way of, you know, although it was a student film, it was a student film called Locks his first project and at that time the student film he did didn't have any dialogue um so it was just music and sound effects and the movie was beautiful you see this this guy in oakland with long locks like long dreads wandering around the streets you see some some gang members getting hand, handcuffed by the police he goes through the neighborhood he sees like other kind of rough things and you're and you're like what's going on where is this story going to go and then he goes into the barbershop and he gets his hair cut off. They sweep it up and they put it in a plastic bag. And then he's, he walks on his way home and then he enters his apartment and he opens the bedroom door and you see his little sister sitting there who has cancer and it doesn't have any hair. And that's the short film. And I, I, I wrote some music for it. And at that time I was living in a, I was living on 28th Street, which in LA is like Fraternity Street. 
I didn't know what fraternities or sororities was before I moved. And I wasn't part of the fraternity, like they had gotten thrown out. So it was only open for grad students. But I was sitting there in that little little room trying to write music and it was like crazy parties going on every night on the street. You know, the all the dudes looked the same and drinking from the red cups and I really I literally felt like I was in an American pie movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then Ryan comes in and we sit down and I have headphones and I give it to him and he's like, Oh my god, is this guitar? Oh, what's this instrument? And he was just so excited and having that reaction and like learning about the instruments and we talk about the you know the techniques that we played and the te- in and that was the that was the beginning of our working relationships and that's still how it still feels like that why don't we take a look at that first collaboration for a moment so people can get a sense of what it sounded like this is locks directed by Ryan Coogler What do you think seeing that? <laughs> it sounds so very early in my career. <laughs> you know, like all your teacher at the time, like, oh, it's, you know, it's, you have to find your own sound. And all the students are like, what are you talking Like, what are you talking about? What, <laughs> how do you find your own sound? What is that? And uh, I'm not saying that that was my own sound, but you can definitely hear some, um, an interesting balance between like melancholy and happiness you seem almost skeptical to say the word <laughs> yeah yeah it's not a word you want to use to describe your music maybe but but maybe or maybe it is of course it should make people happy but it can be melancholic and make you happy in that way i think it's it's an amalgamation of, of both mm-hmm. but the idea of finding your own voice that is something we all have to try to find was that a challenge for you no i mean I think for a lot of people, the way that you think about when you have to find your own voice is like, okay, I need to spend a lot of time by myself in a room and find my own voice. Well, at least for me, the way that I did it was the complete opposite. It was opening doors to other rooms with other people and talking to them or jamming with them and learn what they do and like being interested and and you know, wanting to discover and, and have a musical exchange with people that came from completely different backgrounds or cultures or or played different genres and, and see if we can do things together. And looking back at it now, I think that was kind of what really shaped me to become who I am. When you started working with Donald Glover, this was like before he became Childish Gambino, you were scoring Community at the time. Was it around then that you develop this approach where you would say, what we're making can be cool, it's just not cool yet. <laughs> well, well uh, to me, when I first heard his music, I was hesitant before he even sent me any music because I knew him as being an actor. And I was like, just in my mind, I was like, well, okay, a lot of actors probably think they can do music too. And also in America, like people have a confidence that you don't really demonstrate like that in, in Sweden. 
so when he was like, yeah, I'm, he wrote me an email, like I'm also a rapper and musician and I don't know a lot of people in LA, so maybe you can take a listen to the song and recommend or help me with the mixing of the track. And then he sent me a song and I was like, so surprised. I wrote him back, this is incredible. But what if we just add some drums or add some you know, live drums or we work a little bit on the arrangement? And he was really receptive to that. And we met up and we started to just work together for 15 years. But I thought his music was cool from the jump. And I just, I was like, is there any way we can make this better? Is there any way I can just help in any way? I would love to be part of it. And those early collaborations, first on cul-de-sac, then camp, then because the internet, did it feel like it was uncharted territory for you? Absolutely. I mean, I listened to rap music, not like the standard ones. Like the record I had listened to the most was... Fox Brown album because I just thought it was so cool how she had like Egyptian music on there and like how they use those samples and I was just, I was listening to that and like Midnight Vultures like over and over and over again. I didn't have that deep knowledge of hip hop at the time and I wasn't and I had never really done a beat, but that's also what was so exciting. He was kind of introducing it to me and showing me like all these incredible songs that I didn't know and it was like to me like yeah learning a a, a new instrument and it was the most exciting thing for me. You know, around the time you two started really getting going, you, Donald, and a bunch of your friends starred in a short film directed by Hiro Murai called Clapping for the Wrong Reasons. Now, this is a movie I personally obsessed over with my friends as a soon-to-be freshman in college back in 2013. Why don't we take a look at one scene in particular where um, you are playing uh, on the guitar a little bit? seen that in 10 years and what do you think i think we're all like searching i think donald was definitely searching and i didn't know you know how big part of i was going to have on the record or if i was going to be part of it it was a very kind of a uncertain time for me at least and then there was those there was those jump joy of moments where we were in the studio and that it was like one of the libraries and we were in the studio there and i think it was chris Bosch old house just out of nowhere like I, I was I was always kind of on the spot to come up with something in the moment really really quick that was both stressful but also kind of exciting and because Don had a lot of at that time I was like he, was, he had a lot of things on his mind so if something was going to stick we had a very short amount of time in the studio where, where he could just kind of get into the music and uh, even though he spent a lot of time in the studio but I feel like the, when I was there like we had to do something quick and it was a little it was stressful and and then something great came out of it and it was a it was a kind of a moment of joy and i was and and when that little moment of joy happened it was like how you know i had to sustain that you know okay five minutes ten minutes okay 15 minutes oh this is turning into a song 20 you know so it was like it was a strange time 
and also like with all the albums that he's done like i don't know where he's taking it and don't know where we're going we i just start off like driving blindless at least me on that album like i thought we, we took it to some really interesting places the way you're describing it like that period of of searching even now a decade removed it still sounds as if it's kind of a mystery to you it was a mystery because i was also in a situation where i didn't like i didn't understand those the feelings that i had it was all about like trying to get this music out and i, I guess I, I think like the feelings came out in the music i mean i know that the, the feelings came out in the music and that's why it's so interesting to hear that now you know i can hear that anxiety and stress but the magic in that and just those little few guitar chords that i heard and it's like a calming thing especially that song like the flight of the navigator they all kind of feel like you're a kid or you know and, and playing that in your room and and i think a lot of it comes back to maybe sitting there being a kid and being feeling lonely and sitting in your room and trying to figure out what life's about back in the basement <laughs> yeah it sounds to me like it was like a self-soothing sound. Like you're feeling all this anxiety. And yet that track we just heard is, is extremely calming and, and, and kind of self-soothing. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I don't know if you have kids, but it's definitely a thing you see when you start to understand a little thing, a little bit with, with the self-soothing thing and how everyone finds their own ways to self-soothe. Some kids suck on their thumbs. Some kids like touch their face in a, in a different way some you know some kids jam out to Metallica <laughs> some kids jam out to Metallica and make sad melancholic songs that are also happy <laughs> also happiness in them because <laughs> you have great support from your parents <laughs> but yeah there was I was definitely I, I think when I think back at it too I was lonely also a lot as a, as a kid you know my parents they also they also worked a lot and my sister was six years older, so I spent a lot of time just by myself, too. You've clearly used that loneliness and channeled it into the work. And I wanted to pinpoint those two moments with Kugler and Glover, because, at least to me, they seem like the foundational building blocks of what would become a decade-long collaboration, going from Black Panther with Ryan, for which you won an Oscar, to producing This Is America with Donald, for which you won a Grammy, which, of course, through this decade, brings us back to Oppenheimer. And part of this film is, is about a man obsessed with his work, a man who moves further and further into this project and farther and farther away from his family. And as I was re-watching it last night, I was reminded of this, this quote you had where you said, um, when I go into the studio, regardless of whether I write the music, produce an album, or write a film score, you just immerse yourself into this other world. You become obsessed. Most artists are extremists. You close yourself off, and the work becomes your world. Mm -hmm. That obsession that's central to Oppenheimer, did you feel that kinship in making the score for it? I think that's very true. But I don't consciously, I don't think about any of that when I'm in the process. It's more afterwards, like the conversation we have now, where I see that being a pattern in the way I work. The pattern of obsession. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's the only way I can do it, really. And I think 
also with age comes, you know, you get a little bit of different, you're having, you're starting family, you're, you're starting to see your priorities in a different way, but, and not saying that I'm, I'm doing, I'm having the wrong priorities, but I've definitely been <laughs> the last 15 years just nonstop doing that, you know, without breaks, like extremist <laughs> world to extremist, and they're all so extremely different too. It was also why I think it works for me because it's so, I'm like a different person, different world every time. And it's so exciting to discover these places, but it also takes a toll. What toll has it taken? I think more now for me, it's more important to kind of take the time after you finish something like this and think about how it affected you and think about how, what happened, you know, how it happened, how it came together and, and where the places you went and reflecting more. I guess I'm just more interested in that now, where before that I was just on a train, nonstop train. And I realized now how all these experiences had such a deep impact in me, both on music levels, but personal levels. And I'm excited because after I finished Oppenheimer now, I've had, I've had some time to engage with everything else in my life. And that's uh, kind of a very exciting chapter for me. We've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the personal side of, of making music and the process, your process. Mm -hmm. But when we take a step back, this film is like coming out at a very fascinating time, especially in, in Hollywood, because of course there's this strike that's happening. And one of the big existential fears and issues at play is the use of artificial intelligence, which throughout the film's release, Nolan has explicitly made the comparison between Oppenheimer developing the A-bomb in the early 40s and the theoretical physicists that faced backlash and uncertainty from the U.S. military and Congress, much like the tech industry is facing today in its race to make AI more powerful. He said, quote, when I talk to leading researchers in the field of AI right now, they literally refer to this as their Oppenheimer moment. They're looking to a story to say, okay, what are the responsibilities for scientists developing new technologies that may have unintended consequences? When it comes to making music, where are you at on what AI can do, will do, how it will change the job itself? Uh, I'm very interested in in these type of questions and, and in the technology. And, and it's not even at our doors. It's already entered our houses, enter our living rooms and our listening experience, especially, you know, with that Drake Weekend song that everyone, you know, I'm, I don't know how many million views it has, but it's quite a lot. I still haven't heard it yet. Okay. <laughs> so you can't, like, deny that it's going to change music forever. You can you can have anyone sit in their room and just like, oh, I want to have a beat that sounds like Michael Jackson from the 70s, and I want Bruno Mars to sing a happy birthday message to my wife because she loves him, you know? I don't think there's a way to stop that from happening. I think we all just need to embrace it and, and know that it's here. I think it's going to be a big shift in, in music about you're going to be able to hear the difference you know, I think people are really going to be able to hear the difference in what's made with computers and what's not made with computers and how much computer was a part of this and how much what computer wasn't a part of it. You think people will be able to distinguish between the two? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think maybe there'll be a different service, like AI music will be cheaper and music that people put 
their own minds and hearts and brains too would be more expensive. And I think everyone's going to start using these tools um, that are going to come to place. And it's just like, what shortcuts do you want to take? Like how much do you want to shut your own creativity off? And I think there's going to be some important decisions you're going to have to make. Have you been thinking about that for yourself? Like what you're willing to use and not use? Shortcuts taken, not taken? No, I, I, I want to try it all. Give it all to me and see what I can, how I can customize it as much as possible and make it. But I, I don't have any tools yet, so I, don't, I haven't worked with any AI software or, or things yet. But I think that's just a matter of like probably months or, or weeks. or some, some, It's already things out there that, that I think people are using. No, I want to see what it's all about. You sound completely unafraid about this future. You're kind of one of the first people I've talked to that seems only optimistic. I'm just talking about the music aspect of it. There's other problems, obviously, and it's going to be other consequences. But the music aspect of it, I, I, I don't think, at least for me, um, I don't see any threats in computers making music. Some people are going to listen to it. Someone's going to be great. It just it just kind of depends on who's who's making it. Well, before technology changes how this job is fundamentally done, why don't we celebrate a human feat? Is there a track from Oppenheimer that you are most proud of? Like one that you want people to hear as we leave this conversation? Yeah, we should probably play the the Can You Hear the Music track. And for me, that was one, that was like a breakthrough moment I had on this project, but also in a way I have made music in kind of in a technical level, but also, but also it was like kind of like a eureka moment for me, like on a technical level, writing a composition that goes faster and faster and faster. But after a while, after a couple of bars, you don't even, the listener and the audience doesn't even feel it and start or think about it. It's just, it all, it's just an, an emotion. And then one of the important parts of the process was to figure out a way how we can get the orchestra to perform this in one take. Because if you see the charts, it's literally like 21 tempo changes. It goes faster, slower, faster, slower, faster. And, it's, and, and if you just see it with on the page, you're like, this is not, you're not going to get 40 string players to play this in a way where it's gonna sound good in one take. But we worked on this for three days and kind of banging our heads against the walls. Like how how can we get this performance right? In the end, it's like Serena, she was like, well, these musicians are incredible. She, she's been playing with them for 15 years. They're like the Hollywood Studio Symphony and they this is their job. They sit in the studio and play it seven hours a day to a, to a click, to a metronome. And we figured out a way to to give the musicians a click in their head, the tempo change, the time change in their mind and their heads before it happens on the page. And when we gave them that track, it just, this magic happened. So that's a really interesting, how you combine technology and computers, because this, this music, you couldn't have really written it without computers. But then putting that organic element into it with the live string players playing it all in one take in an organic way gives it so much life and makes it timeless and makes it feel like it's human. I guess we should listen to how that all turned out. All right. This is uh, Can You Hear the Music from the film Oppenheimer.
when you're listening to that, could you have ever imagined that that young, lonely kid playing music in the basement would one day create something like that? No, I don't. I don't. I don't see that in the cards. My dream was to become a member of Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> that never happened. There's still time. It's still time. No, but it's like it's like my dream was. You know, I was I was dreaming about playing my instrument, being on stage, and playing for big crowds and like and, and we've done that you know we did that with childish and and then i was dreaming of being a pop producer and being producing music and that happened too and and then i was dreaming about being a film composer and and then that happened too and and um musically all all those goals and milestones and stones just i guess i was i was lucky i kind of bring up that basement once more as we leave because i've heard that this past summer, you went back down into that basement with your mother mm-hmm. where you were looking for toys for your kids. What was that like? To go back to that place, not for you, but for your children. Uh, it was kind of magical. You know, it's, you're kind of stepping into that. At that time, was just all the reality, and now it's, it's, it's a memory. But it was my safe space. It's, it was my soothing place, you know, where I... Where I felt calm and and that's where I felt most like myself. It was a beautiful moment going back there and everything obviously felt super small. It's like I feel like I was a giant now in, in Lilliput land. See all those guitars still hanging on the wall, seeing those old tape machines, old tape recorders that I used to use and and how they're all still there and yeah, just thinking about like where where's, you know, what am I gonna do with all this when I get old? And I'm like kids are going to do the same thing like what what yeah it's a lot of also a lot of questions did you find a high school report or something like that yeah yeah i found a high school report right <laughs> i guess you talked did you talk to my mom yeah i, I called her up i <laughs> called her up right before this no i didn't talk to her oh so how do you know you said it in, in an interview oh okay yeah i really appreciate that you think i called your mother before this <laughs> podcast it means we've done our job yeah yeah i was like yeah you really don't uh, no, but I yeah found the high school report of my of Five Minutes of Christmas when I, I wrote about the process how I created it and it's still in my in my backpack like I have, I don't know why like I see it laying there and like I know that I I want to read it but at the same time I don't want to go back to that kid that I was and the way I was thinking about music then because it's it's uh, I feel like it's because like I I thought I had it all figured out <laughs> you know. I was like, write the report about it. Like, this is how you make music, and but now I can, I, I know now that I, I didn't know, you know, I didn't have it figured out. You've been really putting it off. I've been really putting that off. Maybe I know it's just gonna bring back like a lot of memories and emotions, and just need to find the right space to do that. Well, whenever that is, I'm excited for you to revisit that past self. But until then. I want to look ahead a little bit because one of the other main components of a Nolan movie is time, how we use it, how we try to bend it to our will, how we regard time that has passed or time that has yet to come. But time is also something I think you've long been preoccupied by well before you began working with Nolan on Tenet. Because isn't it true that when you left for America at age 22, landing here in Los Angeles, enrolled at USC. Did you map out how you wanted your career to go? Yeah, 
I feel like I've always had like, I always had the five-year plan, a 10-year plan, and like, I always know where I'm going to be the next, you know, I don't know how that's where that comes from, but it's always been kind of milestones in my mind about where I want to be and what I want to do. And I guess it's some kind of magic, right? You create your own future. Your mother said when you moved here, here were the big three things. Get a job as an assistant one year after graduation. <laughs> score your own projects after three years. Win an Academy Award within 12 years. Sometimes, she said, he's much faster than what he planned. They all turned to reality, I guess. But yeah, that's interesting. Well, now that you're back home and, and you're sitting with this past year and thinking about what's to come, what do you want down the line? I think right now... um, I'm just, I know how I work. I know what makes me happy. I know what type of process makes me happy, what kind of collaborators makes me happy. And if I can get that and have the time to enjoy with my family as well, I think that's the only thing that, I mean, I'm asking for a lot, but I'm not sure how I'm going to do it, but I, I think I know a way. And I feel like every day I'm I'm, I'm getting closer to the answers uh, of the, all those questions you have and also all those questions I had and feelings that I didn't even think about as a kid and it's like I'm trying to kind of, trying to like going back into those times and understanding it now and I realized how important that is from like a musical clarity of it I'm probably more excited than I've ever been to to kind of step back into it and and discover new paths and new ways and, and new worlds and, and that's also why I wanted to take a little time off and to really get back into that headspace again. Well, the first thing you said when we sat down was, um, I'm afraid to cut my long hair because it may make me a different person. <laughs> I, I may be someone new. And I, I have to say, after having sat here with you for this last hour, I kind of think you don't need to cut your hair to become a different person. I feel like it's already <laughs> happening right now. Yeah. No, oh, thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it. If not for me, then then for Ryan Coogler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And whatever person you end up becoming and whatever you make because of it, I am so looking forward to it. And I just want to thank you on a personal level for making so much of the music that was um, kind of a soundtrack to my formative high school, college years, without which I don't think I would be the strange other long-haired person sitting in this Zoom call. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And we should meet up sometime in real life and be the two strange uh, white guys with long hair sitting in the back of a coffee shop. <laughs> I look forward to it. Ludwig, enjoy the rest of the summer. You too, Sam. It was a great time talking to you and um, I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you. Until next time. That's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to leave us five stars on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you like to listen. 
I want to give a special thanks this week to the team at Online Voices in Stockholm, the Academy Library, IDPR, Universal, and, of course, Ludwig Göransson. To learn more about all of the music discussed in today's episode, be sure to visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. For more conversations, I'd recommend our talks with Pedro Pascal, Hiro Murai, Tessa Thompson, Alana Hyam, Deb Hines, and Ruth E. Carter. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Talk Easy Pod. If you want to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with writer Fran Lebowitz, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our research and production assistant is Paulina Suarez. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and CJ Mitchell. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Narvaez, Kira Posey, Tara Machado, Maya Koenig, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Lita Malad, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with another episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.